Hello, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Evan. Welcome to the show, Evan. Uh, really looking forward to uh, hearing what you've got to say. Um, welcome. Uh, we're going to be talking about attachment, but before we do that, uh, can I just uh, ask you if you, if it's okay with you, could you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, totally. So thank you also for for having me on. I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, so I am a licensed independent clinical social worker, which essentially means I am very clinical. I can provide therapy for individuals. I have a specialty in child welfare with a focus on attachment and trauma. Um, I also specialize in working with young people who identify within the LGBTQ spectrum. Uh, I've been working at an amazing organization called Silver Lining Mentoring for about 10 years. And we specifically focus on matching young people who've been impacted by the foster care system in the U.S. with a committed adult mentor. Um, and what they do is essentially act as a permanency resource and are there to just hang out, have fun. But what we also see is through that process, there's some pretty transformative healing. Um, and especially with attachment, which is a big passion of mine. So I'm really excited to be here today to talk about that. Um, and especially as we think about the relationship of attachment styles as human beings and how they kind of connect to each other instead of this isolated, um, this one person has a attachment disruption versus we all have attachment styles and how do they all correlate together? Wow, fascinating. How, uh, really fascinating. Um, I'm really looking forward to diving deep into this. Um, so how did you get into this area? Mm, that's a great question. So I really benefited from having some amazing mentors when I was growing up. Um, I grew up with my family of origin, but had a, a very wide array of people in my life who really nurtured me in different areas of my life. So I saw the, the real power in that. Um, I decided to get my master's in social work and ended up doing some different placements. And I ended up actually in uh, DCF, which is the Department of Children and Families. And through that experience, I just saw the, the deep transformative healing power of having that one person who really said, I'm here for you. I care about you. And I'm going to stick through this with you no matter where you go. And, you know, as someone who's really passionate about clinical work and as a therapist, I could do all the work in the world with someone. But the power of having that individual who's really there for you, um, especially for a young person, if they're moving through the foster care system and don't have a consistent attachment figure to have that person, that mentor who can really be there and say, I'm just here because I care about you and I'm going to keep following you and I'm really going to invest in you. That was the most transformative piece. And it revolutionized how I viewed myself as a provider, how I viewed the world, how I viewed healing. So that's how I ended up pursuing this particular track. One thing I always laugh about, and especially when working with, with new grads who are coming into the field, is uh, my advisor basically told me I was, I was not very wise to hyperfixate myself in the way that I had, um, but I knew this is what I wanted to do. And I have just seen that time and time again in my work of how transformative it is to have a mentor in place for these young folks where they can build attachment, because once you have that base, the healing really comes forward from there. Okay. So what did you say your advisor told you not to be? Oh, so? She... <laughs> so basically I came in and I was a first year MSW and I told her, I was like, I know that I want to work in child welfare. I want to work in mentoring. And I want to specifically work with young people who have had a lot of placement changes 
and they identify as LGBTQ. And she was just like, that is way too narrow. <laughs> you need to broaden your spectrum here and think about maybe focus on attachment, focus on child welfare. Um, and I was incredibly stubborn and was like, I know this is what I want to do. So I'm going to do it. And it worked out because now I've been at my organization for almost 10 years. Um, yeah. And I've, I've since talked to her and she's laughed about it too. And she's like, you know, I do think it would have benefited you to zoom out a little bit, but it worked out for you. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it funny how, I don't know, it, I, I thought it was just a British thing that everybody, uh, this, this, well, first thing, first thing is like, we're here sharing our stuff, right? But the true answers are within you, dear listener, right? So whenever you hear me rambling, <laughs> when I'm when I uh, when I'm dropping my theory or, or or dropping my theory, dropping my experience on uh, as a as a guest is talking, right? Don't listen to me. Listen to yourself, right? If 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 what I'm made, if I, if what I say makes sense, then take it on board. If it doesn't, then don't go your own way. Uh, and um, the second thing is that, you know, even that, uh, you know, that the, these, these people, I, I, they, even she's she seen it worked out, but she still had to drop in. Yes, I think it would have been better if you'd been a bit broader. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's an opinion. Um, <laughs> it's an opinion, isn't it? Um, and um, yeah. Go your way, uh, own way, listeners. I would always encourage it. The truth is within. Uh, the truth is within. Uh, <laughs> it tends to take a little bit longer to find it within, doesn't it? So Absolutely. I think we all get a bit impatient and we look for the outside. But the truth, the truth is within. We're here as catalysts for uh, to, to wake up something within uh, within you and wake up a truth within you and point to the truth. Um, does that make any? What, what do you think of that? Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And I think especially in thinking about the stuff I'm going to talk about today, one of the things I always share with folks is what I really find more powerful is how you react and how you feel in relation to what I'm sharing. Um, if you have a strong reaction to it, that's really good data for you, right? That's really good information to take in and think about, oh, like this is obviously it's hitting a nerve. It's resonating something. So for me, what I always tell folks is, is listen to what your body's telling you. You may not even have a conscious thought about it, but you may notice like, oh, my shoulders are tensing up. My heart rate's getting a little bit faster. Um, I'm zoning out. I could be less interested in this. And it's not because of the information, but your body will tell you also how you're relating to the information. And that's really good to know and pay attention to because that's going to tell you something's here right? There's something, there's something under the surface, even if it's not a, I absolutely agree. It could be, I couldn't agree less with this. I'm angry about it. I'm frustrated about it. That's telling me that it's hitting a nerve and there's something worth exploring. And it's not because you have to agree, but it's because, okay, something here is going to tell you about your own experience and your own relationship. So yeah. I love that, that piece of reflection. It's, it's a huge part of the work that I do is telling folks like really the, the first step in a lot of this is step back and reflect, right? You don't have to agree with what I'm saying, but just think about how does this connect to you? Why do you disagree? What does this tell you about yourself? And how do you move forward with that information? Because I can tell you the theory until the cows come home, but it's not going to matter if, if it's not connecting to you in a way where you're actually investigating what your relationship is to that information. Yeah. I had a big breakthrough yesterday morning 
Um, I've had a very frustrating situation with a tradesman. Mm. Uh, and I have been seeing this as an opportunity to, to learn on some occasions, but most of the time I've just been a, um, a walking ball of frustration and anger towards this guy. Mm. Um, and I realized yesterday it's because I don't feel safe with this guy for a whole number of different reasons mm -hmm. i don't feel safe so my not feeling safe has led me to ha has come out as anger towards him mm -hmm. and and i was thinking as you were talking about that i was thinking well this is part of the human condition isn't it and this is part of when you know we we t we hear a lot about kids um, acting out and behaviour and having to go. We have to go upstream of the behaviour. Now, I know that, right? I know that in inverted commas. I know that. And yet, when I was looking at when uh, it's taken me about three months to see my own anger acting my own anger coming from a place of insecurity with this particular guy mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and he's he's just be he's just behaving like tradespeople do mm -hmm. like building contractors do mm -hmm. like yeah. like like many painters bricklayers out you know roofers joiners they, this is what they be. This is this is this is this is their culture, mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I, I, so, so yeah. Um, that's a bit of a side. So it, it's a constant, it, it, I, and I guess to underline that, it's like it's a constant, it's a constant um, learning journey mm -hmm. for for all of us. And I count myself on that journey uh, at fifty four, still exploring this and still making the unconscious conscious to heal yeah it is, it's definitely a long-term process and i know a lot of folks um, oftentimes when they they come to therapy or they come into a provider's office it's, it's this notion of i'm aware that i have this thing coming up right or, not, or i may not know what it is but i know that i'm feeling something and i'm having some type of reaction and it's something that maybe i'm not super pleased with and from there, it becomes this healing process. But there's sometimes a, a sense of, well, I'll take care of this. Like, I'll learn this and I'll be better. But the reality is we're all learning all the time. And we also exist in the world. So new things come up all the time that we don't always realize. And sometimes as we heal one part, uh, the other part that was deeper down is now elevated up. And now we're realizing something else is coming through because something was kind of protecting us from getting down to that depth. So I think yeah. healing is, is, is lifelong. And I appreciate that you're, you're being so transparent about that because that's huge. And I think a lot of people need to, to hear that transparency that I'm still figuring stuff out at 54. And hopefully when we're 90, we'll still be figuring things out because that curiosity is, is how we heal. Is it, is it because something just popped into my head? It, it's, it's because we are, when we think about learning, we think about school and we think about, you know, we either know that two plus two equals four, or we don't. 
and we know that um we know that the capital of of the UK is London, or we don't, and and it's and it's a yes no thing. Whereas and still we so for so for as much as I talk about learning curves and lifelong learning, my kind of cultural understanding of the word understanding is it's a, a yes or a no it's a black or a white you either know the answer or you don't uh, rather than seeing a shade of gray so and i think that leads to us to a lot well for me speaking personally it leads us to a lot of frustration because we think i know that mm-hmm. because we we go in with the old paradigm of what knowledge is a yes no rather than a more realistic paradigm of what learning is which is a curve yeah and i think there's a piece too that learning doesn't always have to equate an answer it doesn't always have to equate an outcome that that we can tangibly see i think so much of it is sometimes learning is just is sitting with it right we may not be able to heal that feeling or kind of shove it down or find a way to make sense of it but sometimes it's just sitting with that and saying okay i'm feeling really frustrated right now and I may not know the reason exactly behind that. I may not know all the rationale about why it's there, but maybe I don't need to know that. Maybe it's okay just to say, I'm feeling frustrated and I'm gonna sit with that and then I'm gonna figure it out later. And that's okay too. So I think there's there's a piece sometimes where people like to avoid the, the hard feelings and compartmentalize it. So kind of put it in this, like logically make sense of it or shove it in a little corner in their body and say, I'll deal with that later. And that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a way of handling it, but sometimes it's okay for us to say, this is uncomfortable and I'm going to sit with this and I'll learn the process of just sitting with this hard feeling. Cause sometimes that's what we need to do is just, is just be with it and just understand it and say, okay, I'm feeling really sad. And my go-to might be, I don't want to be sad. So let me shove it away or let me make sense of it. And so sometimes it's, I need to sit with being sad to really let it come to me about why I'm feeling that way. So I can figure out next time, is it okay that I'm feeling sad or is this something I, I do need to work on? The, the, when you talk about mentors forever um, and permanent, uh, the, the, the mentor that's been with me on this for the last, let me think, 12 years, uh, and I used to speak to her all the time. Now I speak to her a couple of times a year. Uh, she says, if we're okay with not being okay, we're always okay. Mm-hmm. I want to break that down. If we're okay with not being okay, we're always okay. Another mentor talks about emotophobia. So, um, this is uh, this is this is a phobia of negative emotions, and then so for me, um, I used to worry about being worried, and then I'd worry about worrying about worrying because I thought, well, I've learned all this stuff, yeah. so why am I still worrying? And then that quickly becomes a vortex. Uh, a darkness into which we disappear down because we have become emotive phobic. It's not okay to be okay. 
It's not, we, we are burying this, we are trying to hide the sadness, we're trying to self-medicate, we're trying to soothe, mm-hmm. um, we're trying to, we're, 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 uh, we're drinking, we're smoking, we are um, binging on spiritual learnings, you know, mm. <laughs> anything that can, can be, we're, we're exercising too hard, you know, <laughs> we can turn anything into addiction. So uh, anyway, we're off down a bit of a ramble. So let me bring it back to attachment stuff because um, that's that's what we're going to talk about today. So what is it? <laughs> so I'm glad you asked. Uh, so attachment, and I, I want to put a, a disclaimer out there that I don't view myself as an expert on attachment. Um, there are so many books and research studies out there about attachment. So I'll kind of cover just the, the highest level. Um, and also put out there too that I, the way that I view myself as someone in the field is I have a responsibility to give the information I have away. Um, so I don't like to gatekeep information. I don't like to put things out there in a very clinical pathological way. Um, I try to really break it down in a way that is just anyone can understand this in the most you know, shared experience way. Um, so attachment essentially is something that has formed in our childhood, especially in the first six to 12 months of, of life. And essentially what it is is when we start to build a sense of security. And there are lots of metaphors that people use, whether they talk about it as attachment being software or building a roadmap, but essentially it's our system of building security and safety for ourselves. So when we have you know, a child, say a toddler who's you know, eight or nine months old, um, we have this typical cycle, right? Maybe they're, they're hungry, so they start crying. They are indicating to the primary person that I have a need that needs to get met. I'm counting on you. So I'm expressing this need to you. The caregiver um, and that parental figure typically responds, figures out what the child needs, soothes that need. And then the child learns, okay, when I have a need and I express it, it will get met. I'm secure. I'm safe. And that then formulates the cycle and that they learn that like people can be counted on. Um, I will be taken care of when I have a need and I express it in this way, things will be okay. And that's essentially what we call kind of secure attachment when it builds. Now, the challenge is that secure attachment is really a privilege. Not, it's not a guarantee in life that you're going to have a secure attachment with a parental figure or a caregiver. Um, so within that, we have different types of working models, which again, we talk about the roadmaps and the software. And our field, we talk about them as internal working models or IWMs, which basically means what's your roadmap to security based on your childhood um, and your own experiences? What does it tell you when you have a need about how to express this and what's going to happen? So if you had secure attachment, you can relatively expect that when I have a need and I express it, my need will get met, I'll be secure, I'll be safe. But if that didn't happen, you might have some different experiences, which we can talk about in a little bit about the different types of attachment. Um, one thing I do want to be really clear about is that the hopefulness of it is that attachment is workable. It's not set in stone. We can have um, other attachment experiences later in life where we can start to get secure attachment. We can relearn that. Our working model, that roadmap is, is always going to be there, but we can learn the, the exits from that a lot more effectively. So it's not just, I have this one road that leads here. It can say, oh, I've got this exit ramp that goes to secure attachment. I've got another exit ramp over here that I can go down to get there. So 
the good news is that attachment is not, not written in stone. So just because you didn't have that experience um, when you were six months old, doesn't mean that that's going to be your experience the rest of your life. So I, I um, when we were flipping emails back and forth before we came uh, on the show today, we were talking about um, the uh, adoptive foster parent carer, um, the attachment that they had that they experienced themselves and then that becoming a uh, uh, being reflected in the attachment that they have with their child mm -hmm. so what's what what we're talking about here what can you put <laughs> a bit more flesh on the bones of that skeleton yeah Totally. So with that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the different types of attachment because that will help make sense of how those two connect. So we talked about secure attachment when everything happens ideally. Um, the other pieces of attachment, there are a couple of different styles. One is avoidant attachment. And essentially what avoidant attachment is, is a same situation that young person had a need, but what happened is the caregiver turned away, right? The caregiver may have felt really overwhelmed um, or wasn't present. So what they learned was when I have a need and I express that, I get rejected. But if I don't express my need, my caregiver, that primary person will actually pay more attention to me because essentially what's happening is that primary caregiver is getting overwhelmed. So they shut down. So that person learns essentially this like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Um, I can't count on other people. I can only count on myself. Another type of attachment is what we call anxious or preoccupied. And this is when the caregiving was really inconsistent. Sometimes that parental figure responded right away and was able to soothe. Other times they weren't, they weren't accessible. They may have shut them down. And that leads to a really anxious state where that person's going to be essentially a bit clingy. They're always going to be a little bit worried about essentially when is the other shoe going to drop? Is this person going to, you know, can I count on them to be there for me? And since I can't count on them, I'm going to cling. I'm going to try and control this to make sure my knee can always get, get, be met. And then the last one, which I want to put a little bit of a content warning out for, because this one can be especially hard, is what we call disorganized attachment. And disorganized attachment, we also call it sometimes fearful avoidant. And essentially, that's a really tough, disorganized state where this young person um, really wants that connection, really wants to be soothed, really wants to have that need met. But the person that's responsible for doing that is also their source of fear. Um, so this sometimes we see this with abuse or neglect, where that young person says, this is my caregiver, I'm supposed to count on them to love me. But when I go to them, I actually end up getting more hurt. So that leads to a really disorganized state where they don't really know what to do, right? They know like, I, I wanna connect with you, but can I, but you might hurt me. And so it leads to this really disorganized state. So I share all that because it's really important for us as adults and especially as people in children's lives to know what our own style is because that's going to kick up when a young person's reaching out to us with a need. So as we talked about, say for example, with avoidant attachment, if you know that you are someone that has more of avoidant um, personality traits, um, or that might have been your experience, if a young person's reaching out and saying, like, I have a need, I need to get met, you might respond with feeling overwhelmed and might respond with feeling, oh, I can't do this, so I'm shutting down. That, in turn, 
is going to influence that child's attachment style because that what they're learning is the same cycle, right? They're learning that same experience that when I have a need, I express it. The person who's supposed to take care of me shuts down. Therefore, I've learned that I need to count on myself. So that's where it's really important that as adults, we start to tune into what is my own attachment experience because we can transfer that onto the other relationships in their life. And talking about children specifically, but we see this all the time in relationships. So I think that's usually a good time for people to start checking in. Is like, how do you see yourself if you have a partner or a best friend? Or how do you see this kicking up in your own relationships? Because that will probably tell you how it's kicking up with you, know, you as a parent. So what's upstream of attachment? Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, well, for me, well, as you're explaining that, as you're explaining three different types, and I'm thinking, hmm, surely most people are, uh, you know, surely most people are d- floating between those types, like uh, all, all the time. So it's more like, it's more like to me, it's more like a. a so let's go for a, a, a an alcohol-free mocktail. Yeah. So mm-hmm. a, a mocktail is elder elderberry juice orange juice and cherry juice or something like that and you've got three different types so you've got three different types surely most people are uh, you know flitting between a mixture of all those types at different types Mm -hmm. of uh, of the day so it's it's a um it's an interesting kind of taxonomy but what is it that's upstream of of that it doesn't seem to me to be the point where all the leverage happens. Mm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So self-awareness. Be... I mean, yeah. is it self-awareness above the upstream of attachment? I don't know. What is? Is there anything up? Is there anything upstream of attachment? Mm-hmm. Where, where's the leverage that, that's going to change the whole? Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. So once we know, like, what? How do we go about shifting that? Right. So if we're saying, I recognize I have more of a pre, you know a more anxious, preoccupied state. How do I, okay, great that I know that, but what do I do with that now? So what I would say, and you, you are right, Simon, that there's emerging research now that we don't just have one working model. We typically have the one that was ingrained because also our brains, um, we have the saying that like what fires together, wires together. So attachment's actually hardwired into our brains. We learn this experience in childhood. It gets hardwired. So our neurons fire and say, when this happens, this is my response. But the good news is brain, the brain is plastic. So we can, we can shift that. We can relearn. So what I would say is once folks kind of figure out, you know, what, what situations bring up what type of attachment for you? Because you will see sometimes different styles with different situations is to reflect back and think about, okay, so I'm having a reaction. I'm recognizing that I'm feeling anxious. So say we have someone who's more anxious, preoccupied and they're a partner. They might um, see that their, their partner is 10 minutes late coming home. And they're feeling really worried. So they're texting them frantically and saying, where are you? Why aren't you home yet? Um, They get home. The challenge is that they can't get back down to baseline, right? So they're going to continue to say, I can't believe you didn't tell me. You obviously don't care about me. Um, I was so worried. I thought something happened to you. That might be typical, right? Especially if there was like an accident on the way home. 
but the problem is they can't come back down, right? So that regulation isn't there as we would see in secure attachment. I'd be like, oh, like your partner say, I'm really sorry, my phone died. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll do better next time. And then they can kind of be like, okay, that makes sense, I'm better. For someone with more of an anxious preoccupied state, they can't, that, that's not good enough, right? That is a, I'm still really amped up. I need to keep you close. I need to make sure that you know that this can't happen because I, I don't know whether or not you're gonna make it back. So for them in that situation, it'd be really important to A, reflect and see like, okay, this is coming from my attachment style right now, but then to really get into the weeds and reevaluate and start to think about, well, where is this coming from, right? What experience told me this? How does it actually serve me? Um, What's the impact on my partner? What's the impact on me? How do I know this is happening? And then to figure out how do they want to shift that? So they might be able to work out with their partner and say, you know, I just have a really hard time with this. Can you make sure before you leave that you charge your phone? And my compromise is going to be that I'm going to try and make my distress tolerance a little bit longer. So maybe it's not you're 10 minutes late and I'm going down this road, but I'm going to hold that we have an agreement that if you're going to be more than 15 minutes late, 15 minutes late, you're going to find a way to let me know. Um, so that they can kind of start to work on some of that behavior modification. And through those experiences, their partner, if they respond and say, yep, I can do that. And we start to see that, that can start to essentially create a sense of secure attachment, which then, as we talked about, can create that off-road from that working model to say, okay, I know now I'm going down this road. I can see my anxious, preoccupied state kicking up. I can see that I'm going down here, but I also know how to get myself off of this. And I know that I can trust that my partner will respond. I can know that my partner will be here for me. I know that they care about me. I know that my need will be met. And I know that if I don't hear from them in 15 minutes, then I need to be worried because we have this agreement and I can trust it. So it's essentially a combination of reflection, really reevaluating how does this serve me? Where does it come from? And then trying to make some type of change plan to manage that. So how, how do we take it into this? Um, how do we take this into the the kind of um, experience, our own experience as a child, and 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 how and, and our relationship with our own child? How, how how does that look? Yeah. So I would say really similarly, uh, especially with children, because it, they don't necessarily know what their attachment style is yet. Um, and I think it also depends on um, essentially what is the child's history coming in. So is this a young person um, that you have had since birth? That's going to be a different experience than if you're, um, say, fostering or adopting a child who might be 10 years old. Um, they have 10 years of history that, and 10 years of a working model that has probably been solidified that you're going to have to work pretty hard on. And how that looks in terms of the interaction between the parent and the child is that it is up to the parent to try and create that secure attachment for that child. So it's not on the child to, you know, try and fix this or make it better. Um, but I could see, and I see this often sometimes in our work is that when a child is having their own attachment you know, situation, say they're activated by something and their attachment styles kicking through, it activates it in the parent. So an example I have is um, you might have, you know, a 12 year old 
Um, and the, you're supposed to pick them up after school. And you are usually there right on time. You're usually pretty reliable. And, but you know, you, you stumble upon some traffic, you end up being 20 minutes late. Um, you get there and the child is just inconsolably angry at you. And you look at your phone and you have like 20 missed calls and all these texts being like, where are you? Why aren't you here? Do you not love me? It turns into this whole thing. Let's say if you have avoidant attachment, what's going to get activated in you is, ooh, this is uncomfortable. I'm shutting down. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm going to try and solve it because it's hard. So my attachment style is kicking through and saying, nope. I'm shutting this down. I'm going to try and make it better. But then what happens for that child is that gives them a messaging of you're too much. I'm not going to be here for you. I'm trying to make it better. I can't sit with this. And so it just ratchets up their own response. And we see more of the anxiousness come through. We see, and it becomes this almost like swirling, like vortex of competing attachment styles. So as parents, you know, I would say in general, you're not supposed to necessarily change your working model. Like you can work on it and get something hopefully more secure, but those, you know, again, they're hardwired and I'm not trying to blame anyone. And we definitely, I definitely know for myself, I have more of an anxious preoccupied state that is totally mine. I have to recognize that with my partner and how it comes through. But as a parent in that situation, when you notice like, oof, this is hard, I'm feeling myself wanting to shut down. The responsibility is then to say, okay, but that's about me. That's my working model. What does my child need right now? My child needs someone to respond. They need someone to soothe them. They need someone to remind them that they're okay, that they're safe. And so it's being able to, I recognize my own reaction. I can regulate myself and my own feelings. And then I can be present with this child and really help them soothe and create a sense of secure attachment. And that's why it's so important that we have the awareness about what is your model, because they all, they all interact together um, and they kind of get activated by each other. So as a parent, it's our responsibility to really sit with that and figure out how can I be present with that and how can I be able to respond to my child without letting my own internal working model really kick up and, and distract and mean that I'm not as present with my kid. So we're, we're recording this on um, Zoom, uh, listeners. And I can, we're doing it on video. You're obviously only hearing the audio. So as behind Evan, there's a, there's a, a, a picture on the wall saying wheel of emotions. <laughs> and, and I guess for me, what, what it, that's kind of answered, well, I, I've got a potential theoretical answer to my own question. So, uh, so the, I asked what's upstream of attachment uh, and I'm going to take a, a, a go at this, that it's emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely one of the, one of the big factors. Definitely. And the emotional intelligence, as in, because I remember reading an emotional intelligence book a couple of, well, I'm going to be about 10 years ago now. And um, it's uh, the first one was all about self. Uh, uh, the South and then relationships were further down the line. So when we're talking and those scenarios that you gave, um, cause I'm a, 
I'm a th- I'm a I'm not a theory guy. I'm an example guy. So when you said the twelve year olds and you know you're the the so the 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 child's got one attachment style um, that clashes with our own. Mm-hmm. Um, that for me is the the crux of the issue. Is 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 um, if we are emotional intelligence, if we are aware of our own um, the attachment style that we grew up in. Then we can spot when our emotional there's a there's a, a there's a, a mismatch between our style and their style, and then we can adjust accordingly. Bingo, bingo, and I think especially to being able to be aware of you know what activates us, and so and I, I I replace the word trigger with activates because I think trigger is really more about trauma. And I think sometimes it gets a little messy where people are like, oh, it's triggered. I'm like, no, you were, you were upset. You weren't triggered. So when I say activate, um, we think about the brain again, it's those neurons, right? So something happens and it's like a, a switch gets flipped and our, our system gets activated and we're like, oh, here we go. I don't know if I'm secure or safe. We need to think about what are the things that activate our different working models. So, and what situations are we more avoidant? In which situations are we more anxious or preoccupied? Um, do we have any disorganized or avoidant attachment work in there? So do we have any times where we would be able to maybe have a little more disorganized orientation to that? And so that is part of that emotional intelligence is being able to be aware of what's going to be activating and how do I know that? I think sometimes, um, especially within different cultures and different identities, being aware of your emotions is not always something that comes right away to be able to say like, oh, I recognize that I'm feeling frustrated. I recognize that I'm feeling maybe some grief or some sadness. And so the other thing, if you're having a hard time figuring that out, could be just listening to your body. Um, Bessel van der Klok did an amazing book called The Body Keeps Score. And it's all about how trauma lives in our body. And I, I apply that more broadly too, because I think all of our you know, emotional responses, we can generally tune into our bodies and tell. So I know when I'm stressed, my shoulders get hunched. Um, when I'm anxious, I can feel my heart racing a little bit more. My, my breath is a little bit shorter. And so that might be an easy piece too, for folks, if they're having a hard time kind of figuring out more of the cerebral emotional piece is just do a body scan and see, you know, what does that tell you in your body? How's your breath? How's your heartbeat? How your muscles? Is your jaw clenched? Um, you know, do you find yourself looking around and trying to be distracted? And that will give you some good ways to start being a little more, uh, practice more emotional intelligence, because that will start to cue you in. Um, just if I'm feeling, you know, my shoulders are hunched and, and kind of tight, that's usually a first indication for me before I'm even realizing I'm stressed. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm starting to, you know, kind of get tight here. Maybe I'm feeling a little bit stressed. Maybe I need to, you know, go take some space. And so that can be a good piece for folks when they're trying to figure out whether or not they're activated to start doing some of those body scans in those moments to be like, what is my body telling me? Because that might tell me more about how I'm actually feeling. Yeah. Because the, uh, the long way around seems a, a, an awful lot of um, rabbit holes. Seems like, you know, something, you know, like uh, the body scanning sounds to me like uh, something that's going to, help me tackle the, the toughest stuff mm-hmm. rather than all the stuff that I'm not aware of, I guess. Because mm-hmm. once we can bring something, because the other, yeah. So we, if we're not aware of it, 
it's the stuff that we're not aware of that is potentially the worst stuff, is it? I don't know. I mean, um, I that the body keeps the score. You know, that sounds pretty scary to me. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty scary. I think, oh. and and all the the neuron stuff. That sounds pretty scary to me. I was I was talking to a mum whose kids got FASD the other um, the other week, and I said, well, she said, well, it's brain damage. It's a brain injury, she said. It's a brain injury. And I was thinking like that. Well, a brain injury, that to me sounds like a car um, that, that I can't drive to the shop, to, to, the, to, the, um, to the garage to get fixed. Yeah, it, it's, it's broken until that part is replaced. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Uh, I said so rather rather than an intermittent fault yeah so there's some you know sometimes you can drive a car but it's it, it's it's lunging and it, you know it's firing on it's firing on one out of two cylinders you know mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure if I picked the right metaphors here but um a brain injury to me sounds permanent right mm-hmm. so I said to so are there any moments of peace mm-hmm. with this with this child and she said yes there are yeah and and i thought well that surely that's what should we be focusing on expanding that and i mm-hmm. e- expanding that focus on that rather than on the on the trauma mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's an inter- it's an intermittent problem rather than A once and forever problem. Yeah. Am I making any sense? You are, yeah. And I think what you're also hitting on, Simon, is it's something that has happened in in the field of mental health. Is that when we look at um, these different spheres, I think, especially within foster care and adoption, you know, attachment, permanency, trauma tend to be pretty big focuses. Um, but how we look at them are shifting, you know, a couple of years, well, I shouldn't say a couple of years ago, but when Bowlby originally created attachment theory, it was believed that you've got this one working model, that's it. And now what we're seeing through more research and also more research on the brain is that we're realizing it's not a one and done. Um, trauma and all these things, they can be managed. And so I think what the person you were mentioning that you talked to is probably hitting on is something in the field that we're trying to do more of to help it depersonalize it. Um, I think sometimes uh, caregivers and parents and people in loved ones' lives who've experienced pretty extreme trauma um, can essentially blame the person for it for the behavior and say, I just don't understand why you're acting this way. Like, oh, you're overreacting again. I can't deal with this. And what a lot of folks in the field have tried to do is switch that to something that is a little less arguable, where someone can say you're just overreacting and instead doing something more tangible, be like, well, it's their brain. Their brain's wired this way. So it, it's, they're not choosing to overreact. That's what their brain is telling them to do. But what we miss in that picture is that it does put off that, that sense of you're broken something's wrong with your brain instead of your brain did exactly what it was supposed to do. Your brain is, is amazing. It did what it was supposed to do to keep you safe. When you were a child, it created that narrative. It served you incredibly well. And now as an adult, 
you have the opportunity to retrain your brain because it's plastic and it's, it's, it's amazing. We know so little about the brain, but neuroscience is really evolving. And what we're seeing is that some of these things are always going to remain as their base, but we can change things. We can add, we can adapt, we can connect new neurons. So they're, they're more malleable. But I think sometimes that gets missed in the provider speak and trying to translate it to something that feels less personal, that it gets, it gets missed in, in the mess of like, well, what does that actually say? You know, what does that say to someone? <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm aware I was just the way I caught myself in the moment. I was listening to interrupt here uh, because I had a great question. Yeah. Um, so what changes the brain? Mm. experience um experiences are incredibly transformative so we have this thing i think i mentioned earlier what fires together wires together and what we mean by that is the neurons are firing through experience and the more that they fire across each other and connect the more permanent they become and so they get wired so that becomes um a, a steady on-ramp where it just knows a plus b equals c instead of, well, this is A, maybe this is F, maybe that results in G. But the more it happens, it becomes more predictive. So experience can retrain the brain. Now, we also so, have to actually be engaged in that process too. Okay. So there's so that what piece. Ex <laughs> what, what experiences should we be giving our adoptive kids to change their brain then? I think giving them the opportunity for secure attachments. So as we talked about being mindful of your own attachment, so being mindful, how are you showing up to this equation? I tend to look at relationships as equations, right? They're, they're two or more people in a dynamic together. We're also, you know, we are human beings, are social beings, our brains are wired that way, we're hungry for connection. Um, and so they're always looking for that. But when we're together, our, our brains are communicating through neuroception and I'm not going to go into the whole science behind that, but essentially we pick up on each other. You know, my brain is picking up on what your brain's putting down, whether or not I'm communicating that. And through that experience with our children, if we're aware of what we're bringing to the table, we can be secure with them. We can show up, we can soothe, we can be safe with them. We can show them I'm consistent. I will be here for you. That experience will start off just showing the child that you are a safe individual, right? So it might just be isolated to you for a little bit, but eventually that can expand because they have that security with you that when they're feeling activated with someone else, they might be able to come talk to you about it. And because you're a secure person, you can help them learn that skill to apply that more broadly. Um, we okay. see this sometimes with the young people that we work with, um, sometimes the young folks that we work with at Silver Lining, have what we call disorganized attachment because of their trauma histories. And that makes a really challenging position sometimes for the adults in their life because, um, you know, the young person's coming to them and saying, I, I really want this, but then they're actively pushing them away. Um, we call this testing. So you might see a young person who's like, I really want my mentor. I really want to see them. And then they get there and the mentee's like, I don't want to see you. I hate you. And the mentor's like, what? <laughs> like, what? Oh, I, I'm so confused. What's happening here? And that's because that's, the, that's that disorganized state for that child, right? It's the, I want this, but I'm really scared of this. And I don't know how to make sense of it yet. And so for the mentor to not get activated and continue to show up and say, well, I'm going to keep being consistent until you feel that in your bones, until you know that I'm really here for you. And they might start to feel more secure with that mentor. 
And then through that experience, they can start to apply that to others and say, well, okay, so if this one person can be secure and I can be kept safe, maybe other people can too. And the more that happens, um, the more it, it wires in the brain. And I also want to be real too. I think sometimes for parents, this can be really overwhelming of like, how, I'm, how am I not going to mess this up? Like if I have my own attachment style, how am I going to make sure I'm always on it? It doesn't need to be hundred percent. Research has actually shown it's only about 70% of the time that you have to get it quote unquote right. So you can make mistakes. And the other piece with that is also knowing mistakes are also incredibly healing because that models for that child that sometimes adults make mistakes and that's okay. We can heal from that. We can still be here for you. So that's to put it out there of like not feeling so overwhelmed of like, oh gosh, I have to get this right all the time. Um, I guess you don't. You're human. You're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Um, but it's, it's through those experiences that child will be able to start to really feel that in their bones. Their brain will rewire it and then it can kind of move forward from there. So I think I was listening to the uh, Karen Purvis, the Connected Child um, book over mm. the weekend, um, which I felt completely overwhelming. Um, uh, and uh, it's this, it could be this, it could be that, it could be, she's like, you know, this could be this, this could be that. And I'm just thinking, come on, you know, this isn't, this isn't, I can see some gems in what she's saying, but a lot of it's so contradic contradictory. Uh, well, it could be this, or it could be, you know, black could be black or black could be white. It was like, I don't get it. But the one bit that I got, right, one that I, that I, that I didn't, that I, I thought, and linking into what you're saying that uh, is, you know, we have uh, traditional parenting, go to your room, right? <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, time out rather than time in, I think was one of the things that mm -hmm. she was talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought that that would be a, a practical um, insight from what you said. So you need to show that, you know, if the, if, if experience changes the brain, our kids need, the kids need to know that we're there for them, whatever, no matter what, which means we are with them rather than sending them to another room. Mm. I think it also depends on the situation, right? Like, Sometimes, you know, if, if a kid did something and they're not, and it's not an attachment thing, like I think about my, my nephew who's, who's four and sometimes he does things that he just needs to go to timeout. And that's, and that's just, that's, a, it's a separate part of parenting. Um, but I think if, if a child is really activated because of attachment, we probably don't want to send them to their room. Right. So we would need to differentiate what is, you know, where is the response coming from? Is, um, is your nephew adopted? Uh, no, no. So I, just... that, I think I'm, that's what I was trying to get to was, you know, this this like traditional parenting send, you know, go to your room. That isn't going to if 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 we're if we're if we're trying to say if, if we say to our kid, right, I'm here for you no matter what. Mm. Right. And then the next minute we send them to the room or the following week, we send them to the room because they have whatever um then they're thinking well you, you're not here for me what for what for, for no matter what because you've sent me to the room i'm, I'm just applying logic on it and clearly mm -hmm. i don't know i i think what for, for one thing for me that's popping up is when my mum was um my mum reacted quite out of character for her when i i got um i had a, 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 a I, I got nudged down by a car doing five miles an hour 
right? So I, mm. I got knocked down by a car, but the car was doing fine. And and it just nudged me down, and I and I landed on the uh, tarmac, what you'd call the blacktop, and I got a bit of a bruise, right? But there was no, there's no life threatening mm. uh, thing. About, but you know, I, I went home, and uh, my mum said to me something like, "Oh, something she called me stupid," or something like that. Mm. And, and I'm thinking, I didn't do it on purpose. Yeah. And it was it was very out of character for her to do that, and I didn't feel that in that moment she was on my side. Now, how many times have I felt that my mum isn't on my side? Not many, mm-hmm. not many. That's probably yeah. I can't. I struggle to think of another one, right? Mm-hmm. But we the the a, a mind is going to look at this stuff. Um, a child's mind is going to look at this stuff and, and is, they're looking for consistency and looking for experience and they're going to jump to these things and we've got to be there for them no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the that's kind of the experience. So I'm just conscious of time. Um, is there anything else that you could share in terms of the practical stuff and let, let's mm-hmm. uh, wrap it up? Um, just trying to think really quick. Gems. I think the most practical thing is, um, and, and just thinking about what you had said about how do we differentiate, you know, how do we know, like this, this notion of I'm going to be there for you no matter what. I think with kids, you know, boundaries are, boundaries and clarity are kindness. So I think being clear about what does it mean that I'm here for you no matter what, doesn't mean you can do anything you want, right? So um, I, we have definitely seen mentors who have really wanted to be there for their, their mentee and be like, you can call me anytime. And then guess what happens? The mentee calls them at two o'clock in the morning. And the mentor's like, this is not what I meant. <laughs> like, I meant, I'm here for you. Um, so I think clarity is kindness with young people. So being clear that when I say I'm here for you and that I'm going to be here for you always, this is what I mean. It doesn't mean that you can act out in ways that are unsafe. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get um, grounded from time to time. But it does mean that you know, I'm doing that because I, because I love you and I want to keep you safe. And I will explain that to you. So maybe instead of just saying, go to your room, I'm done. It might be, I'm really worried about you right now. You know, I think you're, you're have, I can see that you're having a hard time. I can tell how upset you are. I want to talk about that. Let's, you know, kind of get them back to baseline. And then it's saying, okay, now that you're a little bit calmer, what you did wasn't okay. It wasn't safe. It wasn't acceptable you do have to think about some type of punishment, um, which I hate thinking about it that way, but thinking about like, okay, well, there needs to be some type of cause and effect to teach them that. So it's, it's a slightly different approach. It might be able to take a little bit longer to get there. You might need to think a little bit more about helping them regulate and soothe, but it doesn't mean that you don't get to um, parent your child in those ways or think about how do you keep them safe. It's just setting those healthy boundaries. So, and the example of what the young person calling the mentor at two o'clock in the morning um, we were able to kind of coach them through that conversation and say, okay, so you need to talk to them about what does it mean? They asked them like, well, why did you call me at two? I said, well, I was, you said I could call you whenever. So yeah. I called you and, and guess what? You didn't pick up. So I can't trust you. Yeah. And the mentor is able to be really transparent of like, that was my bad. That 100% you are right. I did tell you, you could call me whenever. And I didn't explain to you that I wouldn't pick up every single time because I'm not available 24 seven. So, you know, but I did, but look what happened is I called you right back. I called you 
right? When I woke up the next morning to talk to you. So I did respond. So there are ways you can kind of edge around it and help um, blend the two together and, and still have that while still having some boundaries. The other practical piece I'll just put out there is that attachment is incredibly cultural. Um, so it really depends on the culture about how attachments looked at, how secure attachment is formed in the US is very different than other countries and other cultures. Some cultures, um, you know, a, a more preoccupied state might be more common. Um, it's not a, a bad thing either way. It's just being aware of what's kind of it, what's happening in that culture that might lead to those experiences. And it's not a bad thing. Um, and similarly, I would just really encourage folks to, to give yourself some grace and space. We all have our working model. That's not you. It's not a reflection of your ability to be loved. It's not a reflection of your ability to love others. It's just a reflection of how your brain fired when it was younger and how it kept you safe. And now it's about just looking back and saying, how does that actually serve me? And how does it actually serve my kid? And if it doesn't, you have the ability to, to work on that and to shift that around. And you can do that through your own relationships, which is really wonderful. And I think that's just so great that we've gotten to this point where you can look at attachment and see that it's movable. Um, and it's not so written in stone where it feels almost like a little bit of hopelessness of like, well, I have an avoidant attachment style. So that's, that's what it is. That, that's not the case these days. So now we know more about it and know that we can, we can shift it over time, even if you're an adult. Always hope. Thanks a lot, Evan. You've been an absolute star. Thanks for sharing your, your gems. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. See you again soon. Bye-bye.